Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. Stage 16 of the Tour de France on the menu today as well as Giro Rosa Stage 4. Stage 16 was straight after the second rest day yesterday. 164-kilometer stage starting in La Tour de Pain, finishing in Villard de Lens, uh, Côte 2000. We're going to see some 8,000 watts later. There was, as we said yesterday, a couple of climbs straight out the gate, uh, including a Category 4. And... Then an intermediate sprint at 45Ks to go, so maybe there was going to be another fierce battle between Bora and De Koenig for that intermediate sprint. There was then the Calder Port, second cap, 8.3Ks at 6.3%, and then descent into another second cap, Cote Ravel, 7.2Ks at 7.1%, then a bit of a valley, and then Category 1 climb, the Monte du saint nizier du Moucherot, with bonus seconds on top, 12.5Ks at 6.3%, and then a plateau straight after that, sort of downhill plateau, 2.5Ks and 6.5% was the finale, uh, Category 3 climb. So it could have been, in, you know, on paper, could be an interesting stage, but you've got to remember tomorrow we've got the Col de la Lose beastly stage, stage 17, so just bear that in mind. So what happened with the breakaway forming Benji and the intermediate sprint? Was there a change in what Boro was doing the other day? Yeah, there was. The start was lighting up quite quickly. We had plenty of teams trying to get into the breakaway because today was a stage that basically was made for the breakaway. I did not expect Jumbo to control this stage. I don't think you did either. I think the majority of people watching did not expect Jumbo to care too much about who wins this stage either. At the start, we had plenty of teams attacking, but the main team that we expected to attack after yesterday was Ineos because their leader was decapitated. Bernal, and because of that, they basically said on the rest day that the other people have carte blanche, free cards a bit, to go into the breakaway and try and aim for stage wins. Probably in a more tactical way than just going all for themselves, obviously, but I've got the feeling that today they certainly tried that. And we had plenty of tags there, and I think for a second it looked like a group of 40 was gone, and... The thing that I spoke about earlier in one of the other podcasts happened again. The fact that when someone is gone, a group is gone at the start, you've always got that one guy that is not in the breakaway. And this time around, it was Israel's startup nation that was not in there. And there was a response by, it either was Paulette or one of the other team members there, but I'm not sure who. And it basically caused Jumbo to get in his wheel. And he pulled him forward. Then Kosnefua was... Pretty eager to be in that breakaway as well. So he was like, well, I can't just not be in that breakaway. There was a gap of a minute at that point between that front group and the second group. And Kosnefoy just kept on attacking and kept on attacking. It was like he didn't really have a team to support him for KOM. I'm not sure whether his team is in full support anymore after seeing him, well, drop on every KOM point in the last week. And I think there were quite a few Ajazer riders up there. I'm not sure whether... Pitez was in the breakaway or not at that point. But nonetheless, at that point, everything collapsed together again. And you've got a situation where even Vanard and I think Hesink, or was it Bennett, one of the other jumbo riders was also, was also in the breakaway for a second there. So it was a super weird situation. And the fact is that Jumbo does not want the group of 40 to ride away. And today, that became pretty clear when they closed down the moment that a certain group was gone. And that group was the following... Amador Karapas, Kemna, Daniel Os, Alaphilippe, Reichenbach, Betiol, Anacona, Bargill, 
Erviti Verona, Trentin, Juliensen, Roach, and Pacher. Now, we obviously also saw Sagan and Bennett try and do stuff, but mainly Sagan. He tried to punch into the breakaway quite a few times, but the difference now is that we've got a fourth cat after a few kilometers, after 20 kilometers, and Sagan just was not there with the front group. And every time Sagan made a move, we saw that Bennett was in his wheel. So do you think that Bora made a mistake in the strategy they applied in the sense that they did not just make an all-out train for Sagan on this fourth cat? They just had him do stuff alone as well because they controlled the peloton quite a bit at the start, but they had the breakaway right away, just rode behind them like 30 seconds behind. And at a certain point, I saw that even Sagan had to do it alone towards that group. So it never really worked out in their favor. Do you think that they made a mistake there? Um, I'm not sure if they made a mistake, more that Sagan just wasn't... He didn't seem to be strong enough for them to... Well, I, I'll go back a step... I'm not sure their strategy today, their like a strategy in the Borahans Grub Pass was to get Sagan those intermediate sprint points. That's not what it looked like. It looked like that the other day when they committed half the team for it. But today I think the A strategy was to get a stage win. Um, they got Oss and Camden in the breakaway and that was a really nice pairing again. And, yeah, I'm not even sure Sagan was really strong enough to be dropping uh, Bennett on those climbs, especially straight out the gate. And Bennett, especially out of a rest day, he looked pretty good today as well. He seemed a lot more relaxed as well. So, yeah, I'm not really sure they or made a mistake, really. I just think they decided not to commit too many resources and I don't think they thought the prospects of dropping Bennett were very high. Um, who I thought did kind of make a mistake, or not a mistake, but there was an opportunity, was... When I saw Juan Van Aert and one of the other Yumbo riders in the break, I thought, oh, that actually makes sense. That's That could be a good move because if they let the break go for you know forever or whatever, then Juan Van Aert and whoever's in that breakaway can just drop back at the end of the Category 1 climb or on the plateau if Roglic attacks across to them and maybe puts, try and put some pressure on Tadej Pogacar. It's a bit of a long shot, a really aggressive play that you normally see from someone trying to gain more time. But the reality is I don't think anyone could have really chased Wout Van Aert and the other Jumbo rider. Like who would have – do you think yeah, UAE would have then got on the front and pinned at Benji and tried to bring back that break if Bora Hansgrohe uh, – if uh, Jumbo Visma had some riders in it? No, I don't think so. And in general, I just think that it's a bit too aggressive to expect that from Jumbo at the moment because they've played really defensively so far. And they saw a little bit of a crack in their in their plan the moment they hit Grand Colombier. And I think they will apply more defensive tactics in the coming week as well and not necessarily leap towards an aggressive play because I just don't see that in the tactics of that team at the moment. It's not really what they have done. So I can't really see them do it. Yeah, it's super aggressive, obviously. And... You, know, you wouldn't expect most teams to do it. And uh, I was thinking this reminds me of NFL coaches, American football coaches. There's been multiple mathematical proofs that going for – so there's like four attempts to gain 10 yards on a plane in NFL football or NFL. And you get four attempts, but normally if you don't make it on after three, people kick, uh, they punt. I'm simplifying this obviously. And there's been lots of mathemat mathematical proofs that it is optimal – 
for win- increasing your win expectancy in most circumstances where if you actually go attempt to gain the extra yards to, on fourth down. But there's then other studies which show that there is some sort of behavioural or psychological barrier to that happening in coaches because if they do something that's out of the ordinary, not conventional or more aggressive and it backfires, then it backfires more spectacularly and then the coach will be blamed for out-of-the-box thinking. And that's why I think Yumbo Visma would never try something like that and why I was kind of surprised to see well, Van Aert in that break, and it must have just been because he pulled too hard chasing it back or whatever. But because if they did something like that, it didn't work, and Roglic cracked today or something, or he couldn't get Pogacar or gain any time, and then tomorrow he he lost time on uh, Col de la Lowe's, the coach would get absolutely flamed in the media. So that's possibly a reason why you will see more boring tactics especially when people are you know, in podium positions because if you do something outside the box, even if maybe it's it, – it might seem like it's overcomplicating it, but it probably does increase your – I'd say it would increase their win, win, expect, win expectation doing something like that because no one was going to chase them. Um, they didn't need anyone else except Martin and Grundle Janssen to pace the front. There was a couple of easy Category 2 climbs coming up, Helsinki, and Coos could have dealt with them fine as well, or Bennett. And um, UAE don't really have the firepower either. So, yeah, I I think it would have been fine, but obviously it's an out-of-the-box play. Um, do you ever remember a leader doing something like that, Benji, like someone in the yellow jersey throwing someone up the road and, and going for it? Maybe a pure climber when they've got a flat ITT coming up. I'm trying to remember anything like that, but I think the only, like, nah, I don't think I've got real memories of that really the main memories of such tactics were astana and the tour in the giro of 2016 where they were behind with nibble and had to do crazy tactics with scarponi up the road and so forth to try and make nibbly have a bit of an advantage that way with the um well kreisberg obviously crashed on that stage but they had the advantage of having an astana rider up front who then could pace even harder when Nibali reached him. So I love these tactics for people that are behind, but since the Jumbo team is so extensive and so strong at the moment, it's kind of hard to play such tactics as a secondary rider as well because you can't just launch something like that when you're a Pogacar right now because you basically know that you probably won't get away from the Jumbo train to your rider in the first place, which is obviously an important part of that strategy. Nonetheless, we have some other stuff to talk about in this stage. And the next thing is the fact that there was an intermediate sprint. And, well, I said it. Trenton's in the breakaway. Sagan and Bennett is not. There's plenty of riders in the breakaway. So no points for the peloton. So that means Trenton takes full points. Now, Oswald's in the breakaway as well. Tried to surprise Trenton. And it almost worked, it looked like. But Trenton eventually took it quite relaxed. When it comes to green, that means that, well, Trenton's getting closer. He's at 2.12 now, which is 57 points behind the leader, Bennett. He is only 12 points behind the second person, Peter Sagan, right now. So, honestly, I might see Trenton passing Sagan. I I still don't believe that Trenton can win green. You believe that, you said yesterday. But I've got no belief in that at all. Just because I believe that Bennett will take proper points on Champs-Élysées. Sagan and Trenton can take that on stage 19, which is 70 points if they really go for it. 
but it depends on who takes those points, obviously. So, yeah, I'm curious what's going to happen in green. It's really intriguing, this battle. And, yeah, do you still believe that Trenton is coming closer and closer and might bite these other two out of contention here? Oh, no, I don't think he'll beat Bennett, but I think if Bennett was outside the time limit and um, Trenton just seems to be able to get in the breaks a lot easier than Sagan. He's been just consistently getting in the breaks. That's a skill in itself. That That's an energy cost day in, day out. And he almost created – he bridged across to the break the other day, actually, um, when it was with – Geshka was with him. So, yeah, he's only 12 points behind Peter Sagan. If he just goes into one more breakaway and Sagan's not there and he takes four points, he's ahead of him by eight points. So, yeah, he's probably not going to – he's going to lose a lot of points you'd expect on Champs-Élysées. So I don't think he's going to catch up. There's not enough points on the road probably for him to catch up to close to Bennett. But, yeah, I think he can pip Sagan for second certainly. And if, if Bennett misses the time cut, that will become – one of the biggest come from behind victories, actually, if he if he was able to do it. But there is a, a world in which Trenton does win the green jersey. But yeah, the break went. Jumbo Visma had no interest in controlling it today. Unlike on um, stage fifteen, they let it go out to like twelve minutes or so. There were no GC threats in it, and the peloton pretty much took today off. They cruised up Calderport. They cruised the second cat two climb, and even the category one climb. Nothing too much happened either. So the Peloton had no interest in really anything happening today. Um, there's a little spurt of action at the end. The main action was in the breakaway. The favourites in the breakaway for the stage were Carapaz, Leonard Kemner, Julien Alaphilippe, Warren Buggy, and oh, I'll say Pierre Hollande, but he seemed to be putting in a lot of energy to mop up the KOM points uh, on Col de Port and Cote So... I, he's, he got a little bit tired, I think, even though BNB did a good job for him. But it was a big break. Ineos had multiple riders. Sunweb had actually Tesh Minut was another favourite for the stage. Sorry, he had with him uh, I think Casper Pedersen, Benji, and Warren Bargui was there with a teammate. Clinton Pacher was there supporting Pierre Hollande. So yeah, lots of riders had teammates. Andre Amador, Sivakov were there, supposed to be helping Richard Carapaz, but weren't really able to too much. Um, but, yeah, where did it really kick off in the break, Benji? Because they did, they weren't under too much pressure. So um, with Daniel Oss for Kamner just keeping that gap open and controlling the descents and keeping the pace up on the descents and valleys, they weren't really under any pressure to do anything or attack each other until, well, what was it, the base of the Category 1 climb? Yes, indeed. We had the last climb of the day, basically, if you don't count the finishing climb. That is the Monte de Saint-Nizier de Moucherot. That's one hell of a name, and I'm very happy that I made that. 12.4 kilometers at 6.3%. Has a bonus second on top, but it obviously didn't matter for anyone because, yeah, we know that GC was far behind there. It basically opened up the moment that Roland decided to put Pacher up the road. And at that point, I, well, I was expecting that Roland was in a good seat. He was looking good. But as you said, he spent a lot of energy among the road to take those K1 points, took plenty of points, but it took a lot of energy from him. And the moment that in the chasing group behind Pacher, we saw Amador pace things up for Carapaz, you would notice that Ola wasn't able to follow. You basically only had the riders like Kemna able to follow, Carapaz, of course, Alaphilippe, Reichenbach. And I think, well... Pacher was up front, but I think that's roughly the riders that could actually follow 
the proper pace of Amador there. Amador left the front there, and you had left Katapas, Kemna, Alaphilippe, and Reichenbach. Now, these four riders were all looking pretty good. I genuinely didn't know who was going to drop first. Alaphilippe looked really good at the start there in the middle of the climb. And I thought, well, if he can make it to the top, this finish is perfect for him. But yeah, they caught Pacher. Pacher tried to hang on. And then we saw plenty of attacks in the group. Who decided to uh, run off fast? Well, I'm a little bit surprised Mikel Nieve couldn't make it to that group, actually. He was tipped to do well, and Mitchelton Scott were doing quite a lot of work for him. I think they had Jack Bauer in the break. But yeah, it was Richard Carapaz who won the most combative rider for today. He was attacking quite a lot or pulling quite hard, actually. I think initially they weren't attacking each other. They were testing each other out. Now, Philippe, if you watch this stage, he seemed to have the mystery mechanicals once again. Uh, he went back to the team car multiple times, wasn't happy about something. I'm not sure if he changed his bike. Maybe uh, maybe his discs were rubbing, so uh, let's start that debate. No, don't, don't comment that. Uh, it's a joke. He... But I took that as a sign that something wasn't up because he did that the other day when there was nothing wrong with his bike and he said afterwards, actually, yeah, my legs just weren't working properly. And he hasn't looked so good on these Category 1 climbs he, as he was maybe last year, but it's hard to say how quick they went up this. Uh, apparently, preliminary calculations is Camden did this Cat 1 at 6 watts per kilo for, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. So pretty high level for the break, especially for someone like Philippe, who's... I don't know, maybe, who knows what training Alaphilippe did before the Tour de France. Maybe he focused a lot more on punch uh, so he could go well in Milano San Remo and Strade, etc., rather than that uh, pure climbing. Who knows? Um, maybe he didn't change any of his training at all. But it seemed to me like, well, it was obvious to everyone that they needed to get rid of Alaphilippe, Reichenbach, Carapaz, and Kamner, because if they took him to the line, that... Two and a half k, six and a half percent Liege Baston Liege climb or Fletcher climb. He was gonna, he should win them that stage nine times out of ten out of a break there, especially with someone who doesn't have real punch like Hershey there. Although Carapaz was looking better today, so yeah, he's probably the second best, you know, punchy rider in that breakaway. They were Kemner started pulling quite hard. He's just started pulling hard turns. Looking back, seeing who was pulling through. Carapaz as well was pulling really hard. I think on one of Carapaz's pulls or Kemner's pulls, Alaphilippe got gapped a little bit, and it was at that point I was saying they got to press the button on Alaphilippe here, and uh, one of either Carapaz or Kemner has to attack, and the other will certainly be able to follow, and then they should chop off for, uh, pull turns for a bit. Reichenbach, whenever he was pulling. It allowed uh, Alaphilippe to rest and recover. And, yeah, that wasn't helpful to anybody, really. So they needed to get rid of Reichenbach for that reason. And, yeah, was it – I'm not sure who attacked first, Benji. All I remember is a big Carapaz attack. I remember the, the, the decisive moment was a big Carapaz attack. And it was Alaphilippe shutting it down because Camden made a mistake where he got on the wrong wheel and he was behind Reichenbach. Reichenbach was pulling it back as if he was – pedaling through treacle and then Kemner had to go around him to go across to Alaphilippe and Carapaz and just as Kemner bridged I'm pretty sure Alaphilippe just pulled off and was like no I'm done and so he snapped onto it pretty quickly in like a 25 second burst and then was done so yeah Kemner got a little bit lucky there with he picking that wrong wheel and probably probably would have done got back to Carapaz anyway but yeah he he got back 
half on Reichenbach's wheel, then on Alaphilippe's, and then Alaphilippe pulled off and he was there on Carapaz. And then, yeah, Kamner just... Well, no, what happened next, Benji? I feel like I'm I'm missing a couple of attacks here. Yeah, you're not missing too much, to be honest. At that point, you had those two riding away. And, well, Alaphilippe was totally gone. Reichenbach was, like, in between for a bit. And I wasn't sure whether he was going to come back or not. But we know that after this section, there's, like, a 500-meter downhill. So... We basically knew Reichenbach was gone already with that downhill in mind. Nonetheless, well, then another decisive attack happened because towards the top you had an attack by Kemna on, well, Karapals. And I think Karapals made a pretty big mistake there in the sense that he was overconfident. You could see that. You could see that he did not expect this at all. And he basically rode to the top and suddenly Kemna flew past him and he was like, oh, wait, wait, what? I didn't expect that. And then he started riding behind him. But we know from Kemna's history, I think he's been in the juniors, European champion, world champion, and German champion. I think he became European champion again at U23 level. So we know the guy can jump. In the ITT. Yeah, in the ITT. Now, we know this guy can time trial. So, well, he attacks on the top, at the exact top on him. So he's got 20 meters on Carapaz. Under the arch, it, wasn't it indeed wasn't much, but if you know that a guy can pedal hard for a long time and can push real wads there, compared to Carapaz, who's not exactly the best time trollist, nor is he the, the best ruler, yeah, that gap is enough to ride away. And Kemna, he just kept mashing his pedals, and the gap became larger and larger. And you saw Carapaz in disappointment in the background just slowly go away. And yeah, Kemna had a gap. It was crazy because I expected him to – you think of him as – you look at him, right, and you're like, oh, pure climber. And I expected him to attack – I think he had one little attack halfway up to climb. But you probably expect him to attack a bit earlier because you think, oh, well, Carapaz and Alaphilippe, they got more punch than him. Uh, or maybe you think if he hasn't got a gap by the top of the climb, he just sits in and then tries to attack the base of the Cat 3 so that it doesn't turn out to be a sprint. But Carapaz, knowing that he dropped Alaphilippe, he pulled Kemner for quite a while, and that's what the overconfidence you're referring to, Benji. He he pulled him for a while on the wheel, and this was um this was very different to the finale with Danny Martinez. This was a drafting climb, and drafting made a big difference on this, unlike the, the wall the other day on uh, Puy-Marie. And also, when you look at the watts that Danny Martinez was putting down and Kemner was on his wheel the other day, you know that, well, Danny Martinez on his day, probably a top five GC guy or that sort of level rider, uh, especially up at Steepberg, uh, one Dauphiné. And Kemner was still competitive and took it up to a sprint with him. I know Martinez had to close it on the plateau, but you, you get my point. So he's not a rider you can just pedal on the front for have him in your wheel for two and a half minutes going over 20Ks an hour. Like he's going to attack you and Carapaz seemed to have just a little bit tired legs for three, four seconds. He got caught by surprise. He brought the gap really close. Like I thought he was going to close it down. This is the Giro d'Italia 2019 winner. I thought he was going to close it down and he looked on a lot better form today, Carapaz. He got it to like 10 metres, 12 metres, but just couldn't close it as the climb crested, as Benji said. Then Kemner got into, yeah, he just started time trial away. He got into mock TT position. He was staying efficient. He's definitely, he definitely gained a lot of time 
on the descents, the, the descent. There was maybe an eight-kilometer descent into Lons-en-Vercors, and yeah, he was looked very efficient. Um, and yeah, gained. He pushed that gap out to thirty seconds pretty quickly to Carapaz. Then there was a sort of false flat downhill before the climb, maybe ooh, eight kilometers long, ten kilometers long. He put another min- uh, another thirty seconds into Carapaz there, taking it out to a minute plus. There was a group of five chasing him with Bargui, I think, over the top of the climb. They were maybe a minute behind him. He pushed that gap out to thirty seconds on the descent as well. So. Obviously, Camden had a lot left in the tank. I think there was a difference today to that other day in the Martinez stage where I feel like he just had one thermonuclear attack at the top and went all in and committed to it. He's like, this is my moment and didn't look back. Like he he had he, – Carapaz was closing it and he didn't sit up and he just fully committed to it and, yeah, it worked. And I was so G'd up because obviously did the rest day interview. He's – Really nice guy. Been speaking to him a fair bit. Um, yeah, he's just a nice guy, and he switched on and smart, and he's just part of this new generation of cyclists who think about cycling sort of similar to maybe you and I do, Benji, or people that like this podcast. And yeah, he's just agree- agreeing to the to do the interview was really good. So it was it was awesome to see that happen. Him taking the stage win, particularly after the disappointment the other day with Martinez winning. Um, and, you know, Camden's the guy, he took a bit of time off, I think, after he was at Sunweb, maybe in 2018 or so, didn't know if he was going to continue with cycling. And to come back like this in 2020, at his age, he's still so young, and win that Dauphiné stage, win a Tour de France stage, plus a very strong second on the Puy-Marie stage, um, after not having really many wins for quite a few years, is just incredible. And I'm super stoked for him. And, uh, yeah, as you can tell, I, I was super excited watching it. But yeah, any last thoughts on the uh, on this stage, Benji? What do you see for Kamner in the future? Do you, Does this change your opinion of Kamner? Like, is, did he show an even higher level for you today? I just saw a bit of the um, confirmation regarding the time trial because I feel like since he became a proper World Tour pro, we haven't seen overly much of the time trial skills because he's focusing a lot on the, on the climbing. I think his best result last year was getting fourth on a stage in the Tour de France. So he clearly was building towards a stage win, if you look at last year's Tour de France as well, with plenty of great breakaway stages. Now, in regards to him, I believe that they should try and put him in GC, like you said once in a podcast, for Tour de Suisse or something. Because for a one-week stage race, I feel like he's going to fit well and we could see where he could land somewhere and potentially a top five of that. Maybe more. We don't know. I'm curious whether his time trial skills will help him a lot in that because on paper he should be pretty good into the Swiss knowing there's like one or two time trials per year there. So, yeah, I should... Well, I, I'm not a team manager, but if I was, I'd be trying to put him in a stage race, preferably his to the Swiss because he likes that race, he said. So maybe give him that one and... Give him a try in that and see where he can land, honestly. But regarding to the GC, there were some, well, some actions at the end of the stage. I wasn't expecting much because on the uh, larger kilometer day, they basically didn't do anything. We only saw them do anything on the uh, last kilometer day, the Villa de Los, which is the finishing climb of 2.5 kilometers at 6.4%. So it's basically not that much. And the only thing we saw was that Jumbo was pacing in that group towards that climb 
think it was Vanard and Yesink at the front. And suddenly we saw two riders move through. That's De La Cruz and Pogacar in his wheel. And De La Cruz set up a, a pretty big tempo. And I hope we can see some of that tomorrow as well to see that UAE is in full support of Pogacar because we haven't seen overly much of UAE supporting Pogacar. And at this finish line, De La Cruz kept on pacing, kept on pacing. And the moment De La, De La Cruz was done, Pogacar attacked. It was a bit of a a phoned-in attack, I would say, in the sense that everybody saw it coming. Because, well, if you're in second position and Roglic is in your wheel, he's obviously going to see when you're attacking. And Roglic was on that pretty quickly. But the thing that I found weird and you found weird as well, I heard, is when Lopez decided to fly over them on the left of the road with about a good, I think, one kilometer, 800 meters to go, Lopez attacked on the left of the road and Pogacar closed it down. And I was like, why? You don't have Lopez as a competitor here. He is relatively close, but I don't really see him being a competition regarding the time trial and such. So I felt like it was not up to UAE to close that down. And this might have added extra pressure for tomorrow on Jumbo if, for example, Lopez took some time today. Am I wrong in that? Oh, I don't even think there was pressure on Jumbo or they cared either. I just think these guys sometimes in the heat of the moment, they just forget that there's not a stage win on the line and they're playing 1D chess. And Because that was that was Richie Port's <laughs> move to close down. Like Lopez was attacking Richie Port primarily. Um, I don't... I said in the rest day recap, I think there's two separate GC competitions. There's one for first between the two Slovenians and one for third between Uran Lopez, Port, and Landa, as as it stands currently. So Port was in trouble there because Pogaccio had attacked. It wasn't that steep. It had been the easiest mountain stage they could have hoped for. Like, no one would have been – everyone was chilling. They should have been absolutely fine. If you weren't sick and you're in top 10 GC, you would have been absolutely fine. And you they're cruising up to this climb – De La Cruz didn't hit it out from you know from that long at, at the base. It was sort of in the last section, and yeah, I know Pagacha was trying to make it more of a Fletcher style finish, but it wasn't really that steep. A draft was still important. Roglic obviously isn't going to let him go. It was pretty telegraphed, and even if he did get away, like Pagacha went on the front, right? He was pulled. He, he attacked. He saw that he had literally a whole peloton on his wheel because they knew he was <laughs> going to attack. While Van Aert came across and slid over on top of him and said, "Well, I'm just going to set pace to prevent further attacks." Then it kind of slowed down, and it was it was a really nicely timed attack from Lopez. I got to say, and maybe if Pogaccia didn't close it down, he would have gained five seconds on Port or so. But yeah, Pogaccio closed it down, made no sense to me, and I kind of think these guys are thrashing about a bit at the end of these stages. Then uh, maybe like an anaerobic effort at the end of the stage really makes no difference. Like on an easy stage, doing a sprint like that at the end of the stage, probably not that dissimilar to what they might do in training or on a rest day where they do like, I don't know, two hours and then a few few sprints to keep the legs open. I'm not sure. I'm not an expert on that. But, yeah, I don't think it would be affecting their efforts on the cold that lows too much. It's not like they were really emptying it. But still weird from Pogaccio. I still feel like people, yeah, maybe he doesn't realise that it's – oh, he knows Roglic is his sort of enemy number one for GC, but 
yeah, Lopez has got a fair way, is a fair way behind him. I don't see Lopez dropping him tomorrow at all. Lopez doesn't have the team to set that up. And then even if they were on the same time, Pogacar is going to put time into him on the TT. So Richie Port must have been very thankful that that got closed down. Now, Lopez did have a gap to the line, or on the line rather, but um, he got given the same time as Pogacar and, and Roglic, which I, I don't understand. Like There was a proper gap between them. And Rigoberto Uran, who looks the weakest of the contenders for the fourth place for the third place on GC. And sorry, I didn't mention Adam Yates. Adam Yates is a genuine contender for that third spot. That was remiss of me. I disagree. Um, he was up there. You, okay, well, we'll talk about that in a second. But Uran looked the weakest of those guys, and he got the same time as them, and yet he was, like, way behind. If you actually counted the seconds it took, and they sort of splits between the riders. Anyway, that's a bugbear of everybody that they just always give. They're lazy and they give everyone the same time, even when there are gaps. So there was no change on GC except for Nairo Quintana losing a spot going down to 10th. He got gapped quite early on this climb. When De La Cruz was pushing it, I think Quintana got dropped. He went now goes to 10th. Dumoulin is 9th. He's 5 minutes 19 back. No change in the other first eight riders. But what makes you say Yates isn't a genuine contender for third spot? He's 5th, 2 minutes back, and only 30 seconds behind Duran. He's 10 seconds in front of Richie Port, who's got a way better time trial. And Uran is ahead of him, at least a solid 29 seconds. I don't think he's going to change too much in GC compared to these two riders, except for losing time tomorrow. So I'm guessing that Uran and Port are both going to be ahead of him in GC when we reach Paris. That's kind of my uh, my quick hypothesis of that. Yeah, fair enough. I mean... I think Uran is not winning that third spot on GC. Uh, given what we saw today, I think if the pressure goes on, he could lose quite a lot of time in one of these stages. And, yeah, M- Lopez looks to be the strongest climber in the punchy sort of oh, – that's not even true. I don't even I, – I think he just had a – I don't think Port expected him to attack. So Port and Lopez look to be the strongest climbers in the finales of those guys. But Lopez is looking really good, very consistent this tour. And um, – yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens on Col de la Lowe's between the guys p- fighting out for third. Obviously, it wasn't a very exciting stage. I'm really excited for Leonard winning, but the GC, the Peloton and the GC riders just shut this down and really, ref- apart from Pagacha making them do something at the end, like there was no, Yama Visma were just hoping they could ride this over the line and <laughs> there'd be nothing happening at the end. But Pogaccia made them do something. So credit to Pogaccia animating the race, even when there wasn't really much to gain on, because there wasn't bonus seconds on the line either. But I think this is what goes to Benji, and you're a real master of route design, especially with your PCM background and understanding courses. (laughs) Why is putting a stage like this before the Col de la Lowe stage, why is that a bad idea for making it an exciting race straight after the rest day? Well. That is a very difficult question because I believe that this stage was decapitated by the fact that you've got that 20 kilometer plateau section before the last hill. So it's as simple as that for this stage. If that was any closer, then you would have seen the GC fight for it. So it's not necessarily, well, it depends on how you see it. If, for example, you don't have a team like Jumbo in this race that totally controls it, then there is going to be a battle on the Saint-Nizier du Moucherot. So you've got a situation that's basically blocked by the 
participants and not by the parkour itself, in my honest opinion, on this stage. So regarding that question, I believe that it's Jumbo's fault. Okay. Well, some people are saying, and I kind of agree, when there's a the first real altitude test and big mountains tomorrow, it prevents the strongest team for really playing any of their cards and everyone's kind of waiting for that test tomorrow. But I agree with you. If Ineos wanted to gain time today, if if Yum if, if say say Wavanart had crashed out on stage one, God forbid, and Yumbo Visma looked vulnerable and Roglic was in first, but he was looking kind of weak, but and Ineos had like their strongest team ever, this stage would have looked a lot different. They would have smashed up Cold Port and then smashed it up and probably would have controlled the break and looked to gain those bonus seconds. So, you know, say they had Thomas in 2018 who who is good in sort of the last kilometre of those 6% climbs If he, back in when he had the legs of 2018, sorry. It would have looked a lot different. So, yeah, it kind of – it's hard a year out. you got to remember they're making these profiles a year out, not a week before when they know the exact start lists. So – yeah, it is hard to to make it an exciting race just based on the the profiles you select and putting them all in the right order. But yeah, sometimes maybe if you swap this stage around with the stage tomorrow, where people have will have lost time. So say someone's lost quite a lot of time and moved down to eighth that was in fourth, then maybe they use this stage today to try and gain some of that time back up. Kind of like what Guillaume Martin did, who's out of top ten on GC, he's eleventh. He actually attacked with on the wheel of one of his teammates at the base of the Canterbury One climb in like a long or a Hail Mary to try and gain a lot of time back. And because Yombo Visma wouldn't chase him because he's five minutes behind, they kind of paced him back. Uh, so it didn't work, but respect to Guillaume Martin for actually attempting that. Um, it shows that, yeah, he's really trying to get into top 10 on GC and hasn't given up on a, a third place. It was in vain because Yumbo Visma were riding at a prescribed wattage and they would not deviate from that. They could have let Trek chase it back. It was really Trek, I think, Astana and Bahrain that should have been responsible for chasing it back, but they're so strong anyway. It was an easy stage that they didn't really they didn't really care. So tomorrow is supposed to be the big one. It's the Col de la Lowe stage starting in Grenoble. We've been talking about it for an eternity. It's two HC climbs. First is the Col de la Madeleine, 15.8 Ks, 8.1%. That starts with 88 Ks into the stage. It's a 171 K stage, so that's about halfway, if my math serves me correctly. Then there's the Col de la Lourdes climb, about 20 Ks, 7.8%, up to uh, just under 2,400 metres out. I think 2,300 metres is where it tops out. It's pretty much flat for the first 88 kilometres. There is an intermediate sprint at La Rochette. 45.5 k's into the stage, 22, 25 k's into the stage. So there's this little rise, not a categorized climb, but a rise nonetheless before the intermediate sprint. What do you think is going to happen with the green jersey competition today, uh, tomorrow, Benji? Do you think Aura are going to try something on that rise? Is it hard enough to actually put Bennett under pressure there? I don't think it's hard enough. I think that Bennett is going to get over that. And we're going to see a proper sprint with Bennett getting first, Merku getting second, then Trenton getting third, and Sagan getting fourth. That's what I'm expecting. But it obviously depends on the breakaway. I didn't keep my breakaway in mind at the moment. But if you look at today, we've got the situation where they're fighting for 70 kilometers, 50 kilometers for a breakaway. And I don't think it's going to be different tomorrow. Not going to lie. 
So I'm expecting a long battle for the breakaway. So it will depend on the breakaway whether Bennett can take full points or will be taking a little bit of points or whether all the points will be gone at that point. But I'd still believe that Bennett's going to get over that hill. Yeah, I think so too. I agree. And I think Bora maybe are a little bit tired of like it's a lot of effort and it's a whole team commitment because you have to use you have to use Shuckman or Oss. You have you or you have to use Oss for sure, and they definitely they usually use Shuckman too and Groshart and the Bookman. Whereas if they're going for the break, they probably can't tomorrow because Camner just was in the break. But yeah, theoretically it does take away from their ability to compete for the stage, even though that's maybe unlikely tomorrow. So do you, I think, I think GC, the GC riders are going to win tomorrow's stage or some from the GC group. I think that intermediate sprint, that flat section suggests to me that if a break struggles to go and then they go, they don't have a big gap onto that HC climb. A lot of the climbers like Kamna and Carapaz and co were, in the break today, so maybe they're tired. Ineos, I'm sure, will try again. But I think, yeah, I think that climb is just, they're both too long and they're up to altitude. I'd be surprised if the break went, but, hey, maybe Yama Visma ride really conservatively and shut it down. And Roglic is saying, I'm not going for stage wins anymore. My pick for tomorrow's stage is Miguel Angel Lopez. My pick is going to depend on whether the break actually makes it or not because i've got two potential scenarios one is potentially far-fetched and i know you've got an opposite opinion on it i think Egon bernal is gonna win from the breakaway that's my first one <laughs> i know it's far-fetched but today he was laughing in the gruppetto for me that is taking time on purpose to be allowed to get into the breakaway tomorrow because he's currently on eight minutes before the stage of today and that would have meant that he was unable to get in the breakaway. Now, I think he lost like a solid 24 minutes today or something. So he certainly lost quite a bit of time today. So he's now on about 30 minutes in GC. I think he's going to be allowed to get into the breakaway. I think Ineos is going to send a few riders up there. They're going to send Bernal to a victory on Code La Loza, the same way that Quintana won last year or the year before when his nose was bleeding that time when his GC was already gone. So I think it's going to be a similar scenario to that. But if the breakaway doesn't win, meaning if Bernal is not in the breakaway, then firstly, Roland will try and go for the KOM points. He'll most likely succeed because I'm not sure who's going to contend in that at the moment. He's currently in a draw with Kosnev Huayn first. And it's basically going to be a battle between the person who gets those 40 points and the GC guys who get the 40 points at the finish line. So for KOM, it's going to be interesting whether a GC guy or a person in the breakaway takes it. But I'm putting my bets on the line at the moment for KOM. He's trying too hard to not win it. But when it comes to the stage, yeah, either Bernal wins in the breakaway or I have to go with my pick, Bogachar. But if I have to be honest, he was not really able to close that gap to Lopez too easily today. So... I was kind of worried the last 100 meters. Are you worried about that or am I just like imagining weakness at the moment? Oh, no, no, I'm not worried about No, you shouldn't be worried about Pogaccio at all. No, because he think about how much effort he was doing and maybe he wasn't even really caring too much about Lopez either. Uh, maybe he was just looking like he was going full, but maybe it was not 
there's full and then there's 98%. Maybe he was just dialed it back a little bit, just making sure he didn't really lose, really lose more than a second or so. But I think tomorrow with that, it is going up above 2,000 metres. Lopez is looking really good. Yeah, I think I think Lopez is a really good shout for the stage. Um, it is still a bit of a long shot pick. Well, not really. He, he led the GC group across the line today, so that was below altitude. So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty keen to see what Lopez can do. And will Jumbo Visma's train be able to, like, will they light it up? Will they just control things? Like, there is, it, it, this is one of the difficulties with being a fan of the Tour de France, with not having any data on screen. You don't know what you're looking at because you can't tell what, pace they're doing really on a climb but like you can't tell what what's but you don't have a rolling 10 mins watts per kilo for the group like an average um watts per kilo for the group across 10 minutes which would tell you how hard the pace has really been it, it, otherwise you're just going on and you can get pretty close with your estimations going on visual sort of assessments of difficulties who's in the group who's been dropped but Yumbo Visma didn't really seem to go full on stage 15. Um, they were more controlling things, I thought. And, like, they were still making it hard, but that was a big GC group into the finish. Um, they weren't really trying to drop people. Whereas tomorrow, will they try to? Will they try and control things? I think control things because, sure, Roglic had maybe missed a trick get letting Pogacar take that stage win, but it's... I don't, that doesn't change my opinion on who has the strongest finish in the last 500 metres of a, uh, a mountain climb. I still think it's it's Roglic. Um, just because he makes one mistake doesn't mean we can forget what happened in Dauphiné, Tour de Lain, and previous stages even in this year's Tour de France. So, yeah, I think Jumbo Visma will be trying to control things, set that up. They'll probably have Kuz back on the front. They changed their formation today. They slid... Roglic onto Pogacar's wheel and put Wampanoag and Kus in front of Pogacar, which, yeah, is defensive but very sensible. It's what they should be doing and should have probably done the other day. And, yeah, I think they'll do that tomorrow. And I think Lopez will be able to attack off it, to be honest. I think he'll try. In the finale, he had a good kick today. We'll see what happens. Will Port be able to follow above altitude? I'm really excited to see what happens. Hopefully there's big GC movement. Unfortunately, Naira Man does look a bit unwell. He said, I think someone sent me an interview. It's in Spanish and they translated it for me. So this is all third hand. But he said he is quite unwell from that crash because he like had his whole body covered in the nettles and it is like taxing. It must be hard to sleep, etc. Um, but to your egg and banal point, I really disagree, mainly because if he does get into a break, He's not at a level where he can beat other climbers that would be in the break. Now, maybe Kamner won't be there because he was in the break today, but if Danny Martinez is there, Egan is not beating Danny Martinez in the stage tomorrow, I don't think. Um, he got dropped. Egan got dropped on stage 15 because he couldn't do five. He couldn't really – he couldn't repeat – 5.8 watts for 20 minutes. He couldn't repeat it. He barely barely was able to push it out for the first – climb they did pretty easy on called la Biche, and then he cracked about five minutes into the or seven minutes into the uh last climb of the day so danny martinez was in that group for a lot longer than him on stage 15 
So, yeah, if, he, if there's a break that's going with riders like that, I just don't see how he's able to beat them. Even if he is kind of okay. Now, I don't even know if he's kind of okay. I think he just – I just saw an ITV or somewhere that he had – he's got a bit of back pain or something. that We saw him stretching his back on camera. Uh, he was in the group header today. I'm not sure – like, obviously, he chose to be in the group header. Like, he didn't hang on for as long as he could and then get dropped in the, into the group header. He, he just went there. But – um. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't see some sort of Quintana rejuvenation because he does have these injury concerns and, yeah, he just really wasn't good on stage 15 and there's other contenders for the breakaway that could probably do a yeah, – he'd struggle to beat in present form even if he was okay. So that's my argument against Egan Bernal. Um, this pod's gone long enough already, so I won't give you a right reply, Benji. But, yeah, tune in to the Tour de France stage 17 tomorrow. And we'll see some GC action, hopefully. We'll finish off now with Giro Rosa Stage 4 from Assisi. I believe it, I, I checked it was where St. Francis of Assisi was from, finishing in Tivoli. 165k stage, a really long one, actually. And it's a rolly stage, like lots of punchy climbs. It finished with another sort of wall in an Italian walled town, like every single stage in the Giro Rosa. And one of the women we shouted out, in the preview, or not the preview, we didn't do a separate preview pod, but uh, when we we're talking about stage one, Elizabeth Banks, she was in the breakaway when the footage started with about 15Ks to go on the Equipo car team. We were hoping they would be able to get a stage win at the Giro Rosa. She was in the break with Eugenia Bujak for Ale BTC Ljubljana. Sorry, that's the capital of Slovenia, but I'm obviously butchering that pronunciation. And they had like four minutes, four and a half minutes. So there was... Not too much of a concerted chase behind them uh, for the majority of the last 10, oh, the, from 15Ks to 5Ks, not too much of a chase, to be honest. They were clearly going to win the stage from the minute I turned on the footage for the extended highlights. And yeah, Banks, she was just looking really, really good in 2020. Um, she came second in GP Plouet behind uh, her compatriot, Lizzie Dignan, who's looking really strong too. She and she worked hard in that stage too. She was like, she was pulling hard turns with, um, with Lizzie Dignan. So she's obviously in great form. She like was pulling the majority of the turns for a while, but then, unlike with GP Plouet, where I think she kind of accepted that she wasn't going to win the stage because Dignan was so strong, she. Played a better cat-and-mouse game today. Now, a bit of background on Eugenia Bujak. She's won GP Plouet herself in 2016. She's won two stages of La Route de France. So she got nine pro wins. She's 31. Um, she's a naturalized Slovenian, I think. She was previously Polish. And, yeah, Lizzie Elizabeth Banks won a stage in the Giro Rosa last year. Similar. Like, she broke away, I think. And, um, but yeah, that's her... They're her only win. Well, that was her only win up to date. And they were coming into this climb, and she started sitting on Bujak. They had a four-and-a-half-minute gap, and Bujak just kept pulling into the town, which was, I don't know, she didn't need to. Like There was a big, big gap. She could she could definitely play the cat-and-mouse game. The, the climb was 2Ks at 8%, but there was a ramp in it. it there was some steep paths, particularly at the start. I think, oh, yeah, at the start there was a little bit of a ramp. It's really narrow. It's these weird paved climbs in these towns, these small towns. And Banks just attacked her pretty much straight away at the base of the climb. 
and got a bit of a gap, like a little gap. It was kind of like the Carapaz Camner thing. But she saw that she saw that Buyak was in difficulty and just she kept the, the pace hot, really high and just kept the hammer down, even though she was kind of half on her wheel. And yeah, she broke away from her. So a big surge at the start. It looks like she was going to win by a lot, actually. She did win Banks, another uh, her second pro win, second Giro Rosa win, two years in a row. But she ended up only being seven seconds ahead of Buyak. So Buyak obviously paced it really well and came back, actually. I think she would have came back a bit to Banks, but it wasn't enough. Back on GC, so congrats to Elizabeth Banks. Back on GC in that group, obviously there could be some GC movement with this climb. Now, there wasn't too much in the end, but Annemiek van Vleuten, she... Didn't really have the Michelin Scott team driving it too much. It was Seal Bulls Dormans for a little bit. Bulls Dormans and Anna van der Breggen. Anna van der Breggen not looking in her best form. She's not really going to be contesting, um, I don't think, the top spot. And she's got really the podium under fire as well um, from all the other riders, Michaela Harvey and Ludwig. But, yeah, she wasn't looking too good today either, Anna van der Breggen. And... Yeah, Van Vleuten made this climb long. Obviously, Mariana Vos is the best in like a uh, 30 second, oh, hey, not even 30 second, any sort of uphill sprint up to a minute. Like, no one's pretty much be- beating Mariana Vos. Van Vleuten made this a lot longer than that, very sensibly. And I don't, it was weird. She she gapped everybody. And like, Cecily Utrup Ludwig, once again, like, really fought to get on her wheel. And I think cost herself actually, uh, given where she ended up. She really fought to get on Van Vleuten's wheel. She was, yeah, trying to see if she could go with the best. She couldn't. So one minute and ten back from Lizzie Banks, Van Vleuten won, uh, sort of won the bunch sprint for third. She put her hands up in the air, kind of. So she must have known the break was up the road, and it wasn't for the stage win. She gained twelve seconds on Longo Borghini, who had a better day today for Trekstegafredo. Then was Cassia uh, Nuiadoma, fifth. She was at 15 seconds behind Van Vleuten. Sixth, Lippert, another good day for her. She was did pretty well on stage three. And seventh was Utrecht Ludwig. So she lost mm, 21 seconds on Van Vleuten despite being on her wheel. Mavi Garcia, eighth. Ashley Moorman, ninth. And Voss, who was there, she was there sort of around uh, AVV's wheel at the start of that climb. She... Yeah, she lost a fair bit of time, but she's not contesting for GC. She's going for stage wins. So the movement on GC is uh, Nui Adoma leapfrogs Van der Breggen from, yeah, from third into second for the pole. Van der Breggen now two minutes behind Van Vleuten. Nui Adoma is a minute 56 back. Ludwig is th- uh, fourth, three minutes back. I, I said it when the first when the TTT happened. She was the big loser on the day with the amount of time they lost on that short TTT. She lost over a minute, I think, from memory, and... I think if she hadn't lost that amount of time, she would be already second on GC. I'm just going to check that quickly. So that's the <laughs> how why I really like TTTs. Yeah, she lost a minute twenty. So she she would be second on GC right now if she had if she was on Bulls Dorman's Trek or Michelin Scott or even a keep Paul Carr. So shame for her. Michaela Harvey looking really good. We've mentioned her a couple of times. Or I mentioned her a couple of times now. She's sitting pretty in fifth, though four minutes back. So to me, it looks like a four-horse race. 
a really a one-horse racer first. Still AVV, she's going to win this Giro Rosa unless she crashes or something really weird happens. But it's going to be a really nice fight, I think, between Nuya Doma, Van der Bregen, and uh, Cecily Utrecht-Ludwig for second and third. And maybe maybe Mulman and Longoborghini and Harvey and Mavi Garcia can do something crazy and uh, try and compete with them as well for those podium positions. But, yeah, pretty uh, – it's an okay stage in the Giro Rosa. still like – Eventually, we will get tired of these uphill walled finishes. Um, tomorrow, well, I think it might have already happened, so forgive, forgive me if you've already seen the result. Tomorrow, There's not much we can do. The, the race is on at the same time as the Tour de France, and then the highlights or whatever don't come out until way after, I think maybe when we're recording the podcast. So there's literally nothing we can do to do it any earlier. Sorry, but stage five, starting in uh, Teresina, finishing in Teresina. It's an intermediate sprint, 36 Ks into the stage. And then a Category 2 climb, 13.2Ks at 4%. And a few descent, then a roller, then another descent, then a 1.2K climb at 6.5%, then a flat run into the finish with 110Ks to go. Not sure if they'll you – know, maybe a break will go. I don't really have a good feeling on the stage. I don't – the climb doesn't look hard enough for – like Van Vluten would have to be really committing to decide to try and break away on that climb. And then given that she's already in the Malia Rosa – TT all the way and hold that gap to the finish. So, yeah, I don't really expect it to be anything except a bunch of finish. Um, maybe the pure sprinters will be dropped on the climb, though. So, yeah, reduced bunch sprint, probably Voss or Kopecky maybe, maybe Lippert. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, we'll see tomorrow. The points jersey is Van Lutten. She's leading that as well. She's seven points ahead of Ludwig. Nui Doma is in third. Maybe Voss. I think Voss will probably take that in the end if she keeps, uh, yeah, if she wins another stage or goes to the intermediate sprint tomorrow. But that's the Giro Rosa stage five. I'll probably go and watch that, <laughs> those highlights after uh, we upload this podcast. So I'll see whether what I was talking was complete nonsense. But that was, uh, yeah, we tried to keep this under an hour. Any last thoughts, Benji? On Tour de France tomorrow, do you think it'll be a more exciting stage? And then you can you can uh, take us out. I think we're basically going to have a start that is similar to the ones we've had so far. 50k an hour start, like always, usually in the Tour de France. And hopefully the last spot is a spectacle, because this is the stage we've been looking forward to. It's the second last road stage that matters for GC. So I'm hyped for it. I think everybody is. So let's hope it becomes a very good race. Now, that's it for today, guys. If you enjoyed it, then go ahead and rate it on your podcast player if it allows it to. I think it's mainly on Apple Podcasts. I don't know if the others do that. Nonetheless, thank you very much for listening. And yeah, I'll see you next time. Ciao.